Call to Adventure, hosted by Alexopoulos and John Duckworth. An exploratory conversation about facing the unknown. An opportunity to discuss those pivotal moments that illuminate new paths and reveal deeper purpose and meaning in our lives. Okay, so welcome back to Call to Adventure Radio. Uh, my name is John Duckworth. I'm here with Alexopoulos and... We are happy to have Reverend Jeremy Rutledge here with us today from Circular Congregation on Meeting Street. And a little background, Jeremy moved to Charleston uh, via Houston about, what, three and a half years ago? Three and a half, yes. And uh, previously was in Hawaii for a while where um, he, there was a community of Christians and Buddhists and shoes were optional and open-mindedness was required. That was a quote we found, which I loved. And... Uh, your, your father was a pastor before he uh, left to become an anthropology professor. Right. And encouraged you to take an open-minded approach to your faith, where you ended up attending uh, Baylor University, uh, interested in uh, studying Christian-Buddhist dialogue, religious naturalism, and theological pragmatism, which right. I'm sure we could spend the rest of our discussion just on those three things. Um, but we've got a lot to talk about. So... Um, one thing that I found really interesting when doing a little research was that when the congregation voted at Circular uh, to keep you as a senior pastor, that it was unanimous, uh, that, uh, which quickly became an inside joke that Charleston's famous dissenting church had no right. dissenters right. for your uh, involvement. So um, clearly uh, you have a way with... Uh, uh, ingratiating yourself to uh, to a congregation and and as Alex and I have been noticing has a lot to do with your passion and uh, easy demeanor oh thanks, thanks. Really, really well, it's, it's good to be here and it was I should say it was unanimous our family took a vote and it was it was three to zero so <laughs> all right, all right we're great. all glad to be here great so. great thanks for being on the show Jeremy and my, my mother uh, uh, introduced me to you probably three years ago at circular um, and it was a really nice re-entry into spirituality uh, in a formal setting. And, and you spoke a language that um, seemed to occupy two different worlds, a spiritual and a very pragmatic. It was certainly a language that for me felt very comfortable. Um, and so, you know, when, when you were at Baptist Theological Seminary, um, you studied process theology and ecofeminism. And, and those two were fascinating to me because... Uh, they they sort of grounded spirituality. Maybe you could talk to uh, those those items. Right. Well, I think um, what what was so good for me. I did grow up in the church, but it was a very open church. So it was grounded in its own identity, but it was non-competitive. So it was there were I grew up around a lot of intellectuals, poets, and activists, and thought this was just normal. You know, and and, mm. and so uh, Jesus, for example, was portrayed as a wisdom teacher, and people were very socially active and caring for others. And uh, growing up as a boy, I should say, in Hawaii, um, that's a very multicultural context too. So I remember at Christmas we'd go to church. At other times we'd go to the Buddhist temple. At other times oh, yeah. we'd go uh, to the synagogue with friends, and uh, you just kind of did whatever with whoever was doing that, uh, and got invited into their space. Um, so that's just a quick. It's so a much more inclusive little, rather than exclusive way to to approach faith and it spirituality. Was, it really was. Um, so I'm really grateful for that upbringing and that the seminary where I studied in Virginia 
was made up of really progressive liberal Baptist people. Um, sometimes, as a way of introducing that, we'd say we're the Bill Moyers kind, you know, oh, right. <laughs> if that if that's a helpful thing. Um, but the process theologians and thinkers were really um, started to think about God, the traditional concept of God, in very uh, in very different ways. So that was process based, but God wasn't perceived to be a being so much. Um, as a kind of, well, in the language of those thinkers, as a kind of lure toward the creative good. Um, so there would, there would be things in play and there would be influences, but it, somewhere there was, a, there was something dynamic happening in that. And they, they tried to articulate God within that, but not as a, uh, like a, a being in the sky or something like that. So they were trying to actually get in line with science and the ecofeminists just carried that further. It's kind of a huh. blending of feminist thinking, which was very embodied and very natural, and then uh, uh, getting the ecological side of that as well. It all, it all starts to fit together. I found that really interesting, the, uh, the, the, the eco-feminism, and, and uh, we talked about that a little bit the other day when, with, with, regards to, uh, with regards to the environment, which of course was a, a, a passion of yours, uh, right. and one of your original um, passions when you came to Charleston you thought would be environmental causes, which you haven't given up on. Uh, uh, but can you tell us just a little bit more about that, what uh, ecofeminism, how that relates? Sure, sure. Well, and for me, it was, you know, it was born into it. You can't, okay. you can't grow up by the sea in the mountains in Hawaii and not, not just kind of be a part of that. And I feel like kids in Charleston, people in Charleston, um, have the same kind of relationship. It's elemental. So mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's nonpartisan. People, everybody knows when the tide's coming in. People know what's going mm -hmm. on naturally here. Um, but the ecofeminist, I think, would, would tie that in. Fem so much of feminist thought is embodied. It's not intended to just reside in our heads or be abstract intellectualism. It's supposed to be felt and embodied, and it, it's a kind of maternal wisdom. I think, I think of the midwives I've known and the doulas I've known and, and working with sometimes OBs. And that, but those are different uh, kinds of knowing, and that yeah. embodied wisdom um, the, the ecofeminists would tell us, don't forget that. You know, don't forget what you learned when you were born. Don't well, forget what that, you uh, grew up with. Janet Alterman, who <laughs> was, was our last guest, would wholeheartedly mm -hmm. agree, and that's okay. been one of her life missions, is to sort of try and find a balance within the patriarchal society that we find ourselves in to, right. to really cherish the, uh, uh, the matriarchal side as well, mm -hmm. and the feminism. You know, uh, Charleston, we've always spoke about as not just a place, but it's, it's, it seems to be a place that really has a soul to it. I've lived in a lot of different locations. I can't say every location has that same feel. Um, and so John and I like to ask our guests, sort of, if you think of Charleston as a person, describe him right. or her. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you, re you referred to Robert Smalls. Right. Um, I can, I, share that with us. And I went, I sort of went the way I wanted to go with right. the question, the way I imagined Charleston being mm. or having been. Um, and Robert Smalls, uh, moving here, we wanted to learn a lot of the stories. Um, you can just walk around and people will begin telling you stories about Charleston. But we, we wanted also to learn dissenting stories, um, stories of resistance, stories of uh, people that we could teach our son about. Uh, and Robert Smalls was one of the first people we learned about. And, uh, and I think listeners may know his story, but uh, he was an African-American man during the Civil War, and he uh, dressed as the captain of a Confederate ship, kind of disguised himself at night and smuggled his family and others out and uh, surrendered the ship to the Union. 
Um, and so he was an American resistor. And when I, when I think of Charleston now, I think, I think in so many ways we look the part. We look this uh, genteel southern city. We're a postcard town in, in so many ways. Um, but just beneath that surface, there's so much a stirring. And there's, there are these beautiful currents of resistance and these sort of move toward a, a different kind of freedom, a different kind of liberation. I think of Smalls a lot kind of playing the part as the... As the legend goes, you know, he was sort of had the captain's hat on, was waving and was pretending his way uh, to freedom. But um, I think of him and I hope that I hope that beyond just the postcard loveliness, there's we're going somewhere else, too. Yeah. It's such a great way to, to think about when we ask a question about Charleston mm-hmm. as a person and, and and on a show titled Call to Adventure. And, you know, right. Robert Smalls really took quite an adventure in order right. to do that. And, and, I, and I like that as a as a way to tie into Charleston's own call to adventure. And, and I do feel like, you know, that this city, having lived here now for 20 years myself and Alex as well, that, that, that it is at a, its own sort of uh, turning point in a lot of ways. And, and particularly in light of, uh, you know, the Walter Scott shooting and the, the tragedy at AME and, and these things that are happening in Charleston. I've always said, even prior to these things happening, that if there's any place where some real movement can be made for racial equality. It really should start in Charleston, because this is where it all started in the first place. This is where the majority of all Africans were imported into this country into slavery, and so why not? Why not start here? Is the circularity of that issue, uh, it seems to me, really present? The fact that sort of the the history of uh, the racial inequalities sort of started here. And yet it seems like the city is being called to sort of, you know, deal with those scars and, and hopefully show light and a way to, you know, create, um, you know, to heal those wounds. Right. Well, it, it does seem like that. And it, it seems, I, I just think that the, the scars are so deep here that maybe this is where the healing should begin or should be addressed. Or there's certainly things to bear witness to here. We, we, we smiled when we got here um, in, in some ways because the two things we knew Charleston for were uh, being polite and friendly and starting the Civil War, <laughs> you know, firing. And we thought, how can this be? How can we be so polite and so belligerent at the same time? This sort of both sides of that. What's that about, that contradiction or that tension? And uh, I think we still live with that in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel that. It's, a, it's, it's a, certainly a unique city in that way. There's a lot going on under the surface. In terms of a lot going on, there's a lot going on on your nightstand. I, you, a couple of books, James Wood, The Nearest Thing to Life, the, uh, James Hirschfield, Come Thief, uh, Mark Twain, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer that you're reading with your son. Two that stuck out to me were James Baldwin, The Fire Next Time, uh, and John Dewey, The Quest for Certainty. Um, I, I was doing some research on James Baldwin. Um, interesting. Neither white America nor black America, however, can find freedom or justice apart from each other. Their fates are necessarily and inextricably connected. How, uh, how is that book shaping sort of your views? Baldwin was just, I think, an American prophet. You know, he was doing something a little different during the civil rights movement. He became an, uh, an expat lived in France and but the way he writes about growing up uh, black in this country and also his religious experience but how that didn't connect with his sort of material lived experience as a young man 
um, and the ways he talks about all those contradictions and then produces this extraordinary art out of it and activism and a powerful moral voice. Um, I've lost the thread of the question. I get uh, lost in Baldwin. But I think his work has never stopped being relevant. And Ta-Nehisi Coates has written his book, uh, Between the World and Me, and he's drawing from Baldwin and in some ways. But well, Baldwin's book begins as a letter that's being written. Oh, okay. Coates' book begins the same way. It's a, it's a tip mm. of the cap. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm actually reading them both together because Coates is talking about what it's like to be a black man in the light of uh, Freddie Gray and Walter Scott and Trayvon Martin and all the things we've seen. And, and Baldwin was just one generation back. 50 talking years about prior. Same thing. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and, and Baldwin goes on to say that sort of the, uh, to write the injustices can't come from the white community, that it in fact has to come from the black community. Um, and John, you're, you're doing some reading on Martin Luther King, who seems to... He seems to think the, think opposite. the, the opposite. They were both writing books at the same moment, and, and Martin Luther King would, would say, you know, the, that black America has had, in the 60s, uh, at least, at, when he wrote the book, was doing everything that they could, and that, and that white America was not, and that really right. needed to step up to the plate. And so they differed on those, of course, both really strong individuals who had, right. had the same sort of uh, passion for sort of equality. Uh, but a different different inroads, right? Well, and I think what's so important um, as a white person, there's there's particular work for me to do. Um, mm-hmm. So I admire these writers, in some ways I revere people like Baldwin. But I'm just listening. You know, when I'm reading, I'm I'm trying to sit with his experience to listen to the truth that he's trying to tell me and bear witness to. Um, that's a, that's been a different experience than the one I've had growing up. But then there's work for me to do in my own community. Mm-hmm. Um, about white privilege and the ideology of white supremacy, how those things are still in operation, and what we can do um, to critique and t- start to address that. That's not, uh, white privilege isn't something that uh, black people only need to work on. White people need to raise their voices and to work on that, the beneficiaries of the privilege. So. Sure, yeah. Uh, John Dewey, The Quest for Certainty, written in the late 1920s, I believe. Um, America's most, one of America's most influential philosophers, social reformers, and educators. Dewey demonstrates a need for pragmatism, a philosophy that can heal the schism created by modern thinkers between practice and theory. This seems to be uh, uh, balancing two different worlds seems to be something that you've become very comfortable with in your life, maybe always, but um, perhaps you can talk to the work of John Dewey. Right. Well, John, John Dewey was... Uh really influential for me. And he was sort of a leader in the American school of pragmatism. And, and he was trying uh, to get beyond just theory and get into the world of practice and lived experience. And uh, most of the pragmatists weren't dealing with uh, absolutes, absolute ideals that could then be, you know, then trying to support those ideals. But you're, again, you're looking at the real world. How, what's real lived experience and how do we learn from and interact with that? In his best model, you know, he set up the lab school at the University of Chicago, and it was a, it was a school for young children, um, but they did things in school besides the rote learning of the time. So it wasn't um, teach to the test uh, as we have now. It was much more, uh, you know, we're, now we're going to cook our lunch, now we're going to clean it up, now we're going to do science experiments, but it's very hands-on um, and observational, experiential. experiential yeah. um, and it, it really was suited to children. I think it's suited to all of us. 
Absolutely, um, yeah. But that's that's in part what the pragmatists were doing, and and uh, part of the reason I love them. So. It's one of the reasons why I love uh, <laughs> uh, Buddhism and meditation as well. That it's, right. it's the whole experiential practice that you can't uh, describe to somebody what meditation is like. Mm-hmm. You just have to do it. <laughs> um, well, do you want to take a breather for a, 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 a Beck song? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to share with our listeners uh, uh, some of the lyrics in this song so that they can have a chance to sort of think through it. Because I know that the music you listen to um, I'm sure the lyrics play a big part. And in, in Beck's uh, Turn Away, which is from his Morning Phase album, which your son conveniently put in the, in the car for you to listen to, I love that. He goes on to say, Hold, hold the light that fixes you in time, keeps you under, takes you over the wall, that love divides between waking and slumber. Turn away. Turn, turn away from the weight of your own past. It's magic for the devil and betray the lack of change. Once you have spoken, turn away. Enjoy.
right, well, there we are with Beck and uh, his wonderful album, Morning Phase, with Turn Away, which, as you described, Jeremy, has just an amazing tone to it all the way through from start to finish. I really do love that album. And it, it makes me want to uh, get into a conversation about creative process, which uh, uh, I feel you know, that, that particular song is incredibly poetic. And uh, I found that so often creative process can be a great way to work through difficult times and, and trauma and challenge. And so there's two things. One, uh, when it comes to a story that we talked about earlier this year with Marjorie Wentworth, who you listed as somebody who greatly inspires you right. and is a poet, a wonderful poet, and uh, the poet laureate for the state of South Carolina, and who wrote a wonderful inauguration poem for Nikki Haley that was subsequently uh, left off the menu right? Uh, for its potential, no, nobody would claim exactly, uh, unsightly mention of slavery. And, um, and I found that uh, so unfortunate at that moment. Um, and then uh, there's actually, when, when the Walter Scott incident happened, your reaction was to write a poem. Right. And, and, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I, um I think when the, well, I, I should begin by saying, I think I think there's a really good relationship between poetry and prayer, so yeah. it, it or at least in my understanding, so um, prayer for me is really just earnest expression, as is poetry. But what's so beautiful about poetry is that its language leaves room for ambiguity, for emotional tone, for it's not it's not systematic language. It's not analytical philosophical language. Um, and so it gives a lot of it gives a lot of room. And uh, and some years ago, I was I write all my prayers for services and things like that. Um, and some years ago, I just started writing them as poems, just the way I would write them if nobody else were around. And that went over really well. That kind of speech and and um, it was just one of my reactions. Uh, I was actually in Asheville when Walter Scott was killed and when I heard the news. Um, and I wanted to be home very badly. Um, you know, you feel drawn back home. And, yeah. uh, uh, and I wrote a, a poem just for him, just uh, out of that experience. And then we, it turned out we had a vigil uh, not long after uh, in the field where he was killed. Um, and so we were standing in the field right at the spot and there people had laid flowers and tied things to the fence and uh, but we were standing there um, and this has become an even stronger story because uh, next to me uh, to my right was uh, I think to my right was Reverend Nelson Rivers who's a friend from Charity Missionary Baptist Church on the other side was Al Sharpton who had come down um, in the crowd were uh, Mayor Summy and the Chief of Police as well um, and just behind me uh, was Reverend Pinckney, Clementa Pinckney was there mm -hmm. with us and so we were all standing in this field um, and many others had come and uh, I read this prayer for him which is, which is a poem We come to stand on this spot to press our feet into the ground where he was. Our coming is not a prayer so much as a listening, a drawing toward this place. For he was here, our brother, 
like so many before him, wondering of this country of high unemployment, mass incarceration, failing schools, the new Jim Crow come to walk the same neighborhoods as the old. He was here, our brother, his feet on the pavement as ours, and when he ran, we ran with him, wanting for it not to be so, wanting for a back turned to be a white flag, a momentary truce in the story of Amadou and Trayvon and Eric and a thousand others. He was here, our brother, and now we are here, our prayers made of feet pressed into this ground and tears burned fresh onto our cheeks and rage at an order of things that we can't live with anymore. Our prayer made of two words, the name of a man, not an incident, not an episode, not another chapter in a nightmare story, but a man, a lover, a father, a son, a brother with a name. We say his name, Walter Scott. We bear witness, for he was here, our brother. Amen. Amen. Yeah, it's beautiful. The, um, one of the last lines in the poem about bearing witness is something that you're really passionate about, and, and you've enlightened me a little bit to a gentleman named Bernie Glassman at the uh, Zen Center in Houston, right? He's, um, or he's Actually, Bernie is in New York. In New he's York. He's okay. part of the Zen Peacemakers That's right. Okay. Order. Okay. Um, and, you know, as a way to bear witness, you know, to stand there in the spot like that and, and, and read a, uh, a piece of poetry. Can you maybe uh, tell us and our listeners a little bit about this idea of bearing witness and how it differentiates from sort of action? Sure, sure. And, and it's, um, it's something that Bernie started doing. So Bernie is a, a Zen monk, a Zen teacher. Um, and he does a lot with the Zen peacemakers, a lot of social justice work. So, uh, and people go and they're very zealous. They want to start fixing the world, you know, saving the world. Um, and he, he teaches that first we really need to get in touch with the deep scars or to sit with the world's real pain. And he started doing, um, well, street retreats. So he would have people uh, be homeless for a while voluntarily, you know, oh, and, wow. and have that experience. And then he started leading retreats to Auschwitz. And they would go to the prison camps and just sit there. And he would say, this is sort of a paraphrase, but he would say, we're here just to sit here and to bear witness to what happened here and to try to imaginatively stay here long enough to think about that, not to go mm -hmm. past it, not to rush to the solution, not to make ourselves feel better. I think he would say, we should, it's appropriate to feel really bad. And that yeah. that's part of, that's part of the process. We need to sit with this and, uh, and so when it's a, for him, it's a very meditative thing. There, some mm -hmm. action is going to come out of that, but it's also a place to sit in silence. It's very reverent. And, uh, you know, one of the, I've been very influenced by him. One of the first things we did when we came here uh, was go to sit on the bench uh, near Fort Moultrie, um, the, the Tony Morrison bench that's dedicated to all the people who were brought there again, here against their will, Africans. Oh, yeah enslaved Africans, and we just sat there yeah. and read the plaque, and we said to our son and to ourselves, this is a place where all these people have come, and um, 
we should sit and think about this for a while. And, I uh, take people to the, the, the plaque on Sullivan's mm, Island right. quite a bit as well that, 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 that gets into the volume of traffic that was coming through right there. Right. For the same reason. Yeah. Um, it, it has a, obviously it came out of a Zen teacher, but it's very similar to the way you uh, have your meditation practice, just sort of watching the thoughts go in and out right. and not needing to do anything with them. And I find, do you find that uh, our culture and the way we sort of operate is, 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 that's not the first place we go. We sort of want movement. So right. It's very unnatural. Uh, for our culture and a community as, as a whole to just sort of sit. Oh, I think you're exactly right. Well, I think our culture is very fast-paced for a number of reasons. We could have a whole show on how people feel like <laughs> their calendars are out of control, their iPhones are out of control, they're rushing around. Um, but I also think we're, um, we're unskilled, let's say, at sitting with things that are really uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and I think that has to do with why Marjorie's poem was not read. She was telling the truth. Yeah. And it made some people uncomfortable. Absolutely. It's, but it's true. <laughs> so, it's true. Um, yeah. So sitting with, I think there's real value in t that. And that's part of meditation practice too. You can, we can sit with that and say, I'm, a, I'm aware that I'm really feeling uncomfortable about this. I'm aware that this is, I feel guilty. I feel confused. I feel angry. I feel sad or whatever it is. All valid right. things to feel. <laughs> and, um, and all of, there's some truth in all of that, or at least some, maybe deeper, there's some wisdom in that. So um, not rushing past that. I wouldn't want to stay in that place forever. We, it is healthy to take action and, and to mm -hmm. do things. But, but some of that um, we gloss over so quickly. And it, it feels a little bit sane sometimes when we say, you know, Charleston is a beautiful place. We love living here. Here's the wonderful historical context. But also... Um, there are other true stories that we really need to tell and yeah. sit with. And you know, one, one of the questions was, what trait do I most admire in others? And I loved your response because you said truthfulness, uh, which may differ from honesty. Perhaps you could share the difference because I think most of us would put those two in a similar. Right. Um, so it, it may be hard to articulate. Uh, truthfulness, I think, may have some wisdom in it. So that honesty sometimes sounds a little stark to me. You know, you can hurt people with honesty. If uh, mm. Truthfulness, uh, I, I suppose I do mean it more in a Bernie Glassman way. He's, he wants to tell the truth. He's not trying to hurt us with it, but he wants, again, to bear witness to it and to be real about so there's it. a certain level of intention right. behind the words, behind the, the delivery or the experience. Right. That right. colors it differently. That's interesting. Yeah. I could see that. And, and people can, you can also sort of hide behind honesty and say, well, I, I was just being honest. And oh, then yeah. you can say terrible things about people, <laughs> you know, whatever. And, um, but truthful, I think, just it evokes something else. I'm what does it mean to try to tell the truth? Um, it's interesting because what, the, the, the opposite of that question, what do I most admire, uh, is what trait do I most abhor? And your response was apathy uh, <laughs> an apology for the status quo. And so, um, you're comfortable in sitting, and yet right. you talked about that's not the place you'll always be. Right. Uh, you're not apathetic. You're going to move. Um, can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Well, and um, you know, it's an old um, it's an old wisdom saying that the opposite of love is not hate; it's apathy. You know, it's mm. at least hate has emotion in it. At least it's got some fire. Um, 
But apathy, I think, um, just that going along with the status quo. There's a lot of status quo that seems it seems so big. Systems seem so intractable. I understand uh, the despair that people sometimes feel, that I sometimes feel. Um, but it feels, again, more sane to me <laughs> to to do what I can do to, with the with the limited control that I have to, you know, to exercise it. Um, Even and, against and all ways. odds, which, which I remember a story you mentioned to mm -hmm. me about in Houston where we were going to war uh, with Iraq and you held a prayer vigil, a peace vigil. And, and even though the wheels were in motion, this thing was happening. Right. You commented to me that, that I didn't feel like I had any other option. You know, I, I, had, to, I had to say something. I had to express this, right. this feeling. And in some ways, honestly, uh, well, and there was a whole community engaged in that in Houston, and I know around the world, too. Uh, yeah. uh, I know some people here who were doing it as well. Um, in some ways, that was just bearing witness to my own anger and sadness. I was holding my own candle. <laughs> I was yeah, saying, right. this is not me. This does not speak for me. And, um, and it did feel sane to be with people who were, who were also saying that. And uh, we didn't stop that war. Um, but that's a community of people that uh, were able to do a lot of other good things in the city. And, uh, and we're able to maybe work through um, uh, the, the frustration in some level by coming together as a community. And there's something really right. you know, comforting about that. Even, you know, even to come together and hold a candle for yourself right. is, is better than letting that thing burn out inside. Right. So, you know, perhaps uh, we'll, we'll cut to... Uh, another one of Jeremy's music selections. Let's and, do it. And I always had an affinity with you from the first time I, I listened to one of your uh, uh, teachings. Um, but when I saw your musical interest, and it, it started with Beck, and then it uh, led into Radiohead, I knew that uh, we shared an, uh, a friendship. <laughs> so uh, we're going to cut to uh, uh, Radiohead uh, Separator. Enjoy. Falling out of bed for long 
Charleston, that was uh, Radiohead with Separator. Uh, we're here, John Duckworth, Alexopoulos, and our uh, guest, Reverend Jeremy Rutledge. Um, we started the conversation with sort of your comfort in sort of uh, the duality of two worlds, sort of. Um, and it was interesting, you talked about Sullivan's Island and sort of bearing witness. Um, and, that, and that's heavy. Um, and you also talked about Sullivan's Island and and the pr- playground that it is for you and your family, and perhaps you could just share some of those stories. Right. Well, and and we were talking during the break. It it is that um, that a lot of us are engaged in really uh, really good work, and it's it's tiring work, and it's serious work, and there there is a heaviness to it. There, um, and so I don't think we're supposed to sit around all the time bearing witness, that we're feeling the weight of everything all the time. It's crushing. Um, so Sullivan's is also the place where we have kind of gone since my my introduction to Charleston I was being given the tour and they said is there anything else you'd like to see and I said could we go to the ocean (laughs) that's really the one thing I wanted to see right and um so we went to the ocean and um friends took me to Sullivan's and I just sort of fell in love with it the first time that's your beach now it's my beach yeah Uh, easy to access um oh you guys are really close to there too we're very close and um biking distance from Sullivan's and so so we go uh, Labor Day. We were just out there boogie boarding as long as we could. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we say, my son and I say, you know, let the waves knock the worry out. Just let that, you know, we work really hard, but then we go and just swim and play. And just, it's, um, it's that elemental thing. Everybody turns back into a kid in the best way and just mm-hmm. plays. If you, yeah. 
and uh, that's one of the beauties of Charleston. Everybody's everybody's like that at the beach. So. Definitely, I feel that we we were out at the beach on at Beachwalker County Park for for Labor Day doing the same thing, and um, and it was a rough weekend. So I actually needed some waves to knock some worries away, and it really helped. Well, they're uh, always here, so it's good. We've always got them. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. They're always here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and another uh, thing that we talked about during the break, which makes me smile and clearly makes you smile as well, is is going to drop off our children at Mount Pleasant Academy. And, and Mr. Charlie, the crossing guard, he's incredible, isn't he? He, he is. You listed he's, him as one of, the, uh, one of your favorite people who inspires you in Charleston. Why is that? Well, and it's, um, it's very simple, uh, but yeah. people who know this crossing guard, and there's some other crossing guards too uh, that we know, uh, but just that uh, first name basis with every kid. Yeah. And um, these are older, retired uh, men and women. And, you know, it's one of those things. It's raining, it's cold, it's hot, it's sunny, it's all of these things. And they're out there greeting every kid. And um, from the time uh, my own son was a little reluctant to uh, engage everybody in, in conversation, he was, uh, uh, the crossing guard was just kind and persistent and just held out a hand. And then one day that hand was taken, you know, and it was, yeah. um, it's just nice. There's something, uh, something very communal about that. And he's not putting that on. No. He's having a good time out there. And it's contagious. You can't help it. It's funny because Baze wants to be, he wants to beat Mr. Charlie to school one day. And so far we haven't <laughs> been able to do that. <laughs> it's a funny story. Um, you know, one, one last sort of question I'd like to ask is, um, you know, I think you, you said two of your f- favorite hats to wear are... Uh, being an outsider and a dissenter, maybe not an outsider, but um, you seem to be not easily categorized um, and sort of bridge lots of different dualities and worlds. And is it, it seems an, uh, a position that you're uh, adept at and, and, and handle very gracefully, almost as if you build a bridge. Um, has it always been that comfortable? Um, uh, no. <laughs> no, I mean, a, a lot of growing up, I think, is sort of what's comfortable, what's uncomfortable, figuring out our own identities. It, for some reason, uh, a lot of the pieces of my own story seem to fit really well in Charleston and mm-hmm. within the church. And, and, and I wouldn't say they mirror each other exactly, uh, but circulars that, you know, a downtown historic church on the street corner on all the tours, it kind of looks the traditional southern part. Um, but it doesn't always think in traditional Southern ways. So it's it's always been a, when it, back when it was the meeting house, it was for people who weren't uh, uh, Anglican at the time, which was the state church. So it was for everybody else. Mm. And this idea that it was kind of dissenting, kind of on the margins, uh, a place where people who weren't sure if they could fit could go there. Uh, and then in some ways I feel like I, I do that. Um, you know, I've got the shirt and tie on and the wingtips, skinny white guy. I sort of look the part in a lot of ways. Uh, and someone was teasing me at church uh, the other day saying, when I first saw you, you looked like some Porter Gaud school kid. <laughs> but the things you said, you right. know, where I didn't expect anything like that. Um, and it's fun to play with that a little bit. Um, some of those uh, traditional forms and symbols are very beautiful. Uh, but then also to bring in something kind of current and progressive and relevant to go with that. It's a nice 
It's a really good creative blend. It's I good think. to keep people on their toes, mm-hmm. for sure. Well, I think on two, two issues. In 2014, did you not deliver the first uh, marriage certificate uh, for the first gay, gay marriage in Charleston? I think we, um, I'm not sure who officially was first. There, I think there were also some clergy on the sidewalk outside of the courthouse. You know, so someone may have been first, and I don't want to steal credit. Um, I do know that the first two men who obtained a marriage license came to our church, and we had a ceremony. And all that week, uh, we were having, they, they were the most beautiful weddings I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, I, in many cases, people have been together for 20 years, for 30 years, never thought they'd see it. Um, didn't need a big crowd or anything. They were sort of formalizing something that had been true for a long time. Um, so we'd bring them into the sanctuary. It would be quiet, kind of dark with the stained glass, you know, and just and people exchanging vows again. And it was, com- it was this combination of uh, uh, tearful and just exuberant. You know, the people were just ecstatic, and it was they were the best weddings I've ever I've ever been a part of. That's wonderful. So, it's a nice well, counterpoint to the mm-hmm. to the uh, sometimes weight that you carry around in the with the activist roles too. You right. know, just to be to be able to experience that sort of joy right. simultaneously. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about call to adventure and this idea that that you know coming full circle when you come from Houston, you come to Charleston. I imagine that felt uh, in hindsight maybe as a call to adventure. Here you are off on some new journey into this unknown city, and the call to adventure usually comes. Uh, around full circle, where there's this road of trials, there's an initiation, uh, there's a transformation, and then there's a return. And for me, this is just me looking as, as an outsider, that it feels like this return, where this information you've gleaned in the first three and a half years here, is really coming to play in the, uh, uh, the Justice Ministries work that you're doing. And I love to connect our previous conversation to action, which okay. this what this group is all about. So maybe um, I'd love to hear more about what, what you're doing with that group in sure. particular. And that group was uh, just being formed when I, when I arrived. And uh, it's called the Charleston Area Justice Ministry. It's interfaith. It's multiracial. It's intentionally trying to cross some of the old divisions that have long existed. They exist everywhere. Um, what was so frustrating in Houston for 10 years and change, we tried to do things like this and they didn't come together. And it came here, and so many people were working so hard to make them come together. I feel very fortunate that I could just jump in and say yes, along with a lot of other people who did the hard part. Um, but now we're 29 congregations, and we seem to be about even between the African-American churches and congregations and uh, the white ones. And, and we have um, Jewish, Muslim, and Christian uh, partners in that ministry, and uh, also people just of you know, good philosophy. It, you don't know, have to be even religious if you're interested in working for justice and want to be a part of that. Just hook up with one of those congregations and uh, do the do the work in conscience. But it's uh, it's been three years of work. Now we're going into our fourth year of work, and um, there have been some real policy gains. You know, getting kids early childhood reading spots, um, not arresting so many kids for nonviolent offenses, you know, very practical things, but it's all grassroots. It takes thousands of people. And, um, and through that work, um, real friendships have developed. And it's, and it's um, just from working together and not giving up yeah. for so long. So when, uh, with the year that we've had, starting with Walter Scott, um, I'm, I'm grateful that those relationships were already there and they were already real because you can't... Mm-hmm. 
order them up right now. You know, I'm sure <laughs> at a it moment's has notice. a whole lot to do in thinking about this right now with the way that this city reacted to the AME shooting and, and how violence didn't erupt. You know, there's, there, there was already a foundation for community crossing a lot of bridges. And, and you know, I know that there was a, uh, there's a lot of anger. Right. But that anger was expressed yeah. through forgiveness in a really, like, uh, a poignant moment uh, uh, that everybody, as we come back full circle to talking about Charleston being in this unique place, uh, what a way to set an example for, for a reaction to something like that. Not only with forgiveness, but then immediately followed by action where here comes the flag right. down. Right, state capital and and just powerful stuff. It it has been. I, I think a lot of people. It's occurred to a lot of people that uh, the civil rights movement is not over, and that mm. Charleston in 2015 is actually a very important mm-hmm. place and part of the story, and that we're a part of that. Right. That's great. Yeah. Um, perhaps we'll bring it back to to Charlie uh, and, and the and the crosswalk uh, and one of your favorite quotes by by Kurt Vonnegut, I believe. Um, sure, this is, a, this is a mantra that uh, Vonnegut uses, and I'm stealing it from him, giving credit, but this is, this is his quote, and we, we ground ourselves in this. So he says, My uncle Alex Vonnegut, a Harvard-educated life insurance salesman who lived on North Pennsylvania Street, taught me something very important. He said that when things were going really well, we should be sure to notice it. He was talking about simple occasions, not great victories, maybe drinking lemonade on a hot afternoon in the shade, or smelling the aroma of a nearby bakery, or fishing and not caring if we catch anything or not, or hearing somebody all alone playing a piano really well in the house next door. Uncle Alex urged me to say this out loud during such epiphanies. If this isn't nice, what is? Or a great conversation with a reverend from Circular Congregation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your time. Thank you for having me. Your energy and your thoughts. Yeah. Happy to have you in the studio with us today and and, and look forward to to part two, which is I feel like there's quite a bit that I wanted to get into and we didn't even touch on. So thanks for having us and thanks to to Ohm Radio Charleston for having us on the air. Right. Thanks to Ohm. So as we lead out, I think it's appropriate to lead out with something a little joyful Something you can tap your toes to and you don't have to think a whole lot about and just experience a beautiful jazz rendition. Duke Ellington and Coleman Hawkins and Wanderlust.
Welcome back uh, to Call to Adventure. John Duckworth here in Alexopolis. Uh, that was Duke Ellington and Coleman Hawkins with a beautiful rendition of Wanderlust. Uh, we had a wonderful guest with us here today, Dr. Jeremy Rutledge. John, what were your thoughts? I really enjoyed that. He's, uh, he's such a, a, a calming presence to be around, and, and, and yet at the same time, he's just imbued with some amazing clarity and strength. And I find that uh, really rare combination in an individual, and it's just really nice to have him around. Yeah, it was. You know, one of the things that uh, was so evocative uh, was just the idea of bearing witness. Yeah, I love that. I, yeah. I, that's just, uh, that's an idea that I really want to spend some time with. And, and not only in the big picture of like Charleston and bearing witness to the racial tensions that have, you know, taken place over 200 years ago and those that are uh, taking place today, but just in your personal life, you know, um, just to bear witness and to sit with something uh, prior to feeling the need to move or take action. To do know? anything. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really powerful lesson. It's something that, that all of us could benefit from, just sitting with the truth and really looking at it for everything it is in all of, its, in all of the truth that it is before actually having to figure out what to do. You know, as you mentioned, we're always so, in such a hurry to move. And sitting still and sitting quietly is much more challenging, but it, it, it's something that the results of it can be so much more, can just be so much more right? if you're just able to sit quietly with something. So that's our little call to adventure for our guests, right? Yeah. Our, li our listeners, maybe uh, over the next couple of weeks, just take an issue and uh, just bear witness. Yeah. Um, thanks to WOHM Charleston for making it all happen, to uh, our good friends Thomas and Jeffrey, uh, Corbin and Marcus for making everything take place. Um, if you want to get more of Jeremy Rutledge, where can you find him, John? Uh, well, you can find him at Circular Congregation on Meeting Street, Sundays, 8.30 and 11 o'clock in the morning, or his blog is exceptional, and you can find that at charlestoncahoo.wordpress.com. I think it's on the Circular Congregation website, too. So uh, if you are listening to the radio and you're outside of our antenna, you can always stream all of what's on 96.3 by just going online to omradio963.org. And for, for this show in particular, we're on Wednesdays at 4, Sundays at 2, and you can also find our past episodes on iTunes uh, on the podcast. So, and if you really just don't want to sit with it and you're driven to do some sort of action, go check out Charleston Area Justice Ministries. The work they're doing is amazing, and um, I think... Uh, points of contact and connection are really what's bringing a lot of uh, the good work that's being done in Charleston to the surface. Thanks for spending an hour with us. Have a wonderful uh, week and uh, we'll join you uh, again next week. And remember, the road that is distinctly your own has never been traversed. Celebrate the path that is your call to adventure. This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com.